This is episode 516 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we look at our spiritual lives, it seems that many of us have two key objectives in mind. One is to grow closer to our Lord and experience the higher Christian life, or at least try to understand what the higher Christian life looks like in real time. And two is to have our faith grow to the point that we'll be spiritually prepared for the chaotic times coming our way and the trials, tribulation, and persecution that will most certainly follow. And both of them can be fulfilled by studying the book of Acts and focusing on the powerful ministry the Holy Spirit had in common men who lived their lives under times far more chaotic than ours are right now. But today, we're going to look at just one aspect of the ministry of Jesus and see how it played out in the life of the early church that is found in a brief description given by Luke in Acts 1.1. There he says this, The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. It's just a partial sentence. But note the phrase, do and teach, and note also the order. We see this order played out all throughout the gospel, ministry first, teaching and theology later. There is a time for learning, but you can't live your entire Christian life sitting in a Sunday school class, soaking in biblical knowledge like many in his church do today. At some point in time, you have to move beyond learning, move into doing, and move out and do the will of the Lord, especially when that will is the ministry of evangelism. So join us today as we learn how to do the will of the Lord and talk about it or teach about it afterwards as we strive to leave Laodicea behind. Hey, before we start, I want to remind you how we got here uh, while we're, why we are looking at uh, the book of Acts today. We've talked about some of the turbulent times in which we live, and the fact is, biblically, we know they're going to get worse. Uh, they're not really going to get better um, until the Lord Jesus comes. And so the question is, how do we prepare for that? How do we have the kind of faith that allows us to persevere during tough times? Other Christians in the last 2,000 years, many Christians, have strived and thrived during difficult times. The early church, it was said, was born on the blood of the martyrs. Uh, Christians today in other countries know what it's like to have their faith tested, know what it's like to stand true for the gospel, come what may, no matter what. We in the West, we in America, of course, don't. We've never had any persecution to the church. We are, are given tax-exempt status for the fact that when we make donations to a church or to another nonprofit entity, meaning the government wants us to actually do those things, we can worship with relative freedom. We have churches on almost every single street corner of every single denomination and flavor that you can think of. We have Christian TV, we have Christian movies, we have Christian books. Used to have Christian bookstores, but now everything's moved online. I mean, we got it made. We don't like this particular church. We go to another church. If we are involved in gross immoral sin. We know that this church isn't going to discipline us. And if they do, we'll go to another church. Nobody cares. It just becomes something that we do rather than something than we are. We, as believers in the West, are incredibly ill-prepared for anything negative to happen to us. And the idea is the fact that since we are, in my personal opinion, living in the beginning of the close of the American experiment here, um, since we're doing that and since the church will suffer collateral damage and since you are one of the deplorables, the fact is that we need to figure out how to have that kind of faith that perseveres, how the kind of faith that gets stronger, how the kind of faith that grows like it did in communist China or in Vietnam or in Indonesia when the government would persecute the church and they would find that the underground church was huge and it was strong and it was, it's what the heroes are made of. And so the best way for us to do that is to go back and look at the history of the church in the book of Acts. And as I've shared with you, the book of Acts, you need to look at it with different eyes because the book of Acts is not just an historical account of the things that took place during the first 30 years of the 
uh, first century, the book of Acts is really a training manual for his church. You ask the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he gives us the Lord's prayer. Lord, teach us how to minister in your name. So he gives us examples of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Lord, show us what church looks like. Okay, I'm going to give you 28 chapters here of what church looks like. And so this is my church. This church doesn't have any of the benefits that you have. It doesn't have multiple Bibles. It doesn't have uh, 2,000 years of history. It doesn't have theologians in the Christian faith. It doesn't have God's Not Dead movies or The Chosen or uh, Bodie Taney books that we can read instead of something else. It doesn't have any of that. But nevertheless, this church grew to such a point that um, by the 21st chapter of Acts, they were accusing Paul of bringing this message into their town that turned the world upside down. And who were these men? Well, they were unlearned, uneducated, common laborers. They were fishermen. They were carpenters. They weren't the intelligentsia. They weren't what we would call an influencer today with a whole lot of following. They were people just like you and I. That something happened to them, something changed them, something empowered them in such a way that this is what happened. Lord, uh, how are Christians supposed to live? Why don't you see how they lived in the um, first church? What is the mindset that a Christian is supposed to have? I mean, your Bible says we're pilgrims and sojourners and this world is not our home. What does that look like fleshed out? Because it doesn't seem like I know anybody who lives like that today. Everybody's kind of in it for themselves, building their own mini kingdoms. What does that look like? Go to the first church and see how they did it. Lord, what happens when the persecution gets so bad that I can't live in my hometown anymore? Should I let my light dim? Should I make living in my hometown more important than the gospel? What happens when, when that happens to me? I mean, what should I do? Why don't you see what happened when the persecution broke out in Jerusalem in the early church when Stephen was killed and all of a sudden Saul of Tarsus started breathing out murderous threats against them. Who are these people? What's their mindset? What would it be like? How intimidated would I be if sitting on the front row here are members of the early church? Would they be bored at our worship service? So that's how you praise the Lord? You stand and put your hands in your pocket and sing some songs? Oh, okay. Well, don't you do it that way? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, And so... How many people here want to talk about, you know, what God has done in your life this week? Both hands come up. Anybody else? No, no, I didn't really have much time to study. How about you guys? Oh, let me tell you what happened. I mean, how intimidating would we be? How can we learn from them? And so we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. started last week, but we're going to look at it differently. We're not going to be looking at it as a linear historical account where we just basically, oh, here's what happened, and here's what Paul says, and there was an earthquake, and the chains fell off them, and they ran, oh, there's a Philippian jailer. Let me read the text to you and, and make some lame application. Let's try to get in our head and what, who these people were and what they did and how their life changed and see if maybe there's some things that we can learn. And it all begins with this verse. Acts chapter 1, verse It's the theme of the entire book. It says, you shall receive. You, it's personal. You shall receive. That's the whole crux of the Christian life. It's not something we do. It's something that we receive. I'll receive what? You'll receive power. This is dudamos. This is explosive, miracle-working, life-changing power. It's the word that we get dynamite from. You shall receive power. When now... But when Jesus was with us, you know, when he died on the cross, when? when? When do we, do we receive it on Sunday, on Monday? Can you give us a date? How long do we have to wait? You'll receive this power when something happens, when the Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, co-equal with God, God of all gods, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, comes upon you. For them, it happened in Acts chapter 2, and the church was born. For you, it happened the moment that you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. That doesn't mean that he is 
empowering you because we can grieve him. We can lock him up in a little jail cell somewhere. We can keep him from moving in our life. But you have everything they had in Acts chapter 2 in you already. We are divinely powerful against darkness because of what exists in us now. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what will happen is not that you'll do signs and wonders, not that you'll preach great sermons, not that you'll build mega churches, not that you'll have best-selling CDs and albums or or be famous on television or be an influencer with 50 million followers, none of that. You will simply become witnesses, eyewitnesses, those who testify of me. And you'll begin right here in Jerusalem. And then in all because we're not going to miss any of these Samaritans that you don't particularly like. We're not going to take a haphazard view of that, but you'll be in Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of Samaria, and then to the othermost parts, ends of the earth. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. As I've shared with you countless times, when you're getting ready to study the Scripture, in a way that you want God to talk to you, the first thing that you have to ask are questions. If you don't ask questions, how do you know when he's going to answer your questions through the text? And so as we're looking at these people and we're looking at this text, I have some questions. These are my questions. And so I I write them down. Lord, this is what I want to know. This is where my heart's at right now. Who were those people in the upper room? We know there's 120 of them, but I want to know what they're like. I mean, did they, did, they, did they have one foot in the world and one foot in your kingdom? Did they, were they all from Jerusalem or were some of them from outlying areas? Where, I mean, where did they come from? You'll find as we get in chapter, more in chapter one, that most of these people were from Galilee. You know, Peter, I recognize your dialogue. You're from Galilee. And if we lived back 2,000 years ago in Israel, Galilee to us would be like Appalachia. I mean, it had this strange country accent. They'd be hillbillies. They wouldn't be anything that we in Jerusalem would look on favorably. You've got Jerusalem, and above that, you've got Judea and Samaria between Galilee. Then Galilee is just like country area up there. These people were from Galilee. When the angels came and Jesus is being lifted off, From the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, the angel said, men of, do you remember? Galilee. I mean, these guys were like us, Southerners. You know, they're just good old people. What did they think? I mean, we know that they were on the Mount of Olives. Did they travel all the way down there to be with Jesus? Didn't they have home businesses they need to take care of? Didn't they have sheep and and carpenter shop to say they need to, to run? Did they close up their shop and follow Jesus with everything? Were they like the other disciples who gave up their fishing business to follow Christ? I mean, why were they even there in Jerusalem at that time? And the big question, what made them different than us? I mean, these guys had far less than we have, and they were living in a hostile, occupied land. And, and they, were, they were preaching a message which made people choose, not choose culturally, that they were preaching a message that says, in order to be a believer in Christ, you must repudiate everything you believed about the Messiah in the Old Testament. You believe that you could somehow have a relationship with God by keeping the laws, not the 10 commandments. We've watered those down to 614 commandments that we think you need to keep. And if you'll keep those commandments, God will, based on your own merit, allow you into heaven. And then Jesus comes and says, all of that means nothing. The law does nothing but show you how hopeless and helpless you are, and it's by grace in the atoning sacrifice of who they believed was a criminal and a blasphemer, you will have eternal life. That's a tough crowd to preach this message to. But they did. 
and the church grew. We talked about it last week. Started with one, then 12, then 120, then there's 500 more that saw Jesus. And if you combine those groups together, by the time Jesus ascended into heaven, there was no more than 620 believers at that time. All of them probably Jews, most of them from Galilee. As a matter of fact, of the 12 disciples, the only one scholars believe wasn't from Galilee was Judas. And there's a story in and of itself there that maybe we'll talk about on another day. Then Peter preaches this sermon, 153 words, not counting Old Testament passages in the book of, uh, 157 words in the book of Acts. 3,000 people get saved from all these different dialects from other countries. And then all of a sudden it's 5,000 people, actually it's 5,000 men. And then the Lord's adding to their numbers daily and then it's multiplying and it grows exponentially. Think anything like that could ever happen in our country, in our community, among our families? I mean, they were followers of him. Well, so are we. Okay, but what aspect were they following him that maybe we weren't? Or are we following him the same way that they followed him? Or are we following him differently than they did? They forsook all. We add him to our life. They yielded everything to him that I'm bought with a price. I'm no longer myself. Everything I have belongs to him. We ask him to season our life. Hey, you know what? I'm a, I'm a Republican and I'm, uh, I belong to this club and this social organization. I'm on that bowling team and oh, I'm a Christian too. It's not for them. Their identity was tied up in whose they were. They were given a certain command. You shall be my witnesses. Where? Among your own family, among your own friends, your co-workers, the people that you know, what we call E1 evangelism, and we'll talk about that later. And then you move on beyond that and to other areas because your life is not defined by how much you possess how much money you have, how big a house you have, how wonderful a retirement you've accumulated. Your life is defined by the spiritual gifts, the treasures in heaven that you send on ahead. You shall be my witnesses. By the way, do you realize that's the same command for us? Not just for them. That's why God saved us. But did they fulfill it different than we fulfilled it? And when it comes to fulfilling that command, to telling our lost loved ones about Jesus, do we even want to? I mean, if we did, wouldn't we? And I've determined over the years that one of the reasons why we don't share about this life-changing encounter we've had with the living Lord Jesus is because it's not a life-changing encounter we've had with the living Lord Jesus. It's an arm-length relationship to a body of theological and ethical teaching and a cognitive belief in a deity that we're hoping will somehow lead us to heaven. But when you encounter Christ and all the power that comes with God living in you, this change that takes place, as they said in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we can't help but speak and teach about the Lord Jesus. We, on the other hand, we can't even make ourselves tell anybody about Jesus because I started out so good. I mean, when I first got saved, it was wonderful. Do you remember? My sins were forgiven and I realized that God was real. My, I prayed for the first time in my life and I swore to the Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it with reckless abandon. Lead me, show me, teach me. And he did. And then we became like all the people we swore we would never become like. Oh, just kind of satisfied, not being a 10 anymore spiritually, the closest we've ever been to the Lord, but something less than that. Now we're seven, six. And you know what? That, that's okay. Everybody else is a seven and six, meaning the higher Christian life for us is just recapturing territory we've already lost. And who do we lose it to? Satan? Usually not. We usually lose it to our own flesh because of the price that gets paid. They weren't like that. If they have the Holy Spirit and we have the Holy Spirit, then what do they have? What, what aspect of the Holy Spirit 
if I could term it that way, do they have that we somehow lost? And is it possible, ask yourself this, is it possible to rediscover the power that seems dormant in the church today, that was so alive in the church then? And if it is possible to rediscover that, do we really want it? A couple weeks ago, I shared with you a one of those watershed verses, which is based on what you choose, talks about persecution and tribulation and tough times. And the verse says, if you remember, all who desire, you remember, to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Okay, are we? Are we? Are we losing our jobs because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our neighbors turning against us because our light shines so bright as the power of Satan aligning all his forces against us because we're a thorn in his flesh? The key word there is desire. If we don't have a desire to live godly in Christ, we will not suffer persecution. And we've come to believe in our culture and our your best life now that the only reason why you would ever suffer persecution is if God's not blessing you. God's not giving you his covering of favor. But the scripture says exactly the opposite. That's what the Jews believed. Why was this man born blind? It must have been his sin or the sin of his parents or somebody messed up really bad. And that's why this man is like he is. Do you remember that? We do exactly the same thing today because this world now has become our home. So if I really want this promise of the Father and everything that it talks about with the Holy Spirit, how would it change my life? I mean, what would be different? And, and do, it's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Do you really believe, really believe that it is possible, even 1% possible for a small group of believers absolutely, abjectly, totally committed to him like they were in the book of Acts. Could we really turn this nation upside down for Christ? Uh, no, it's, it's too far gone. There's too much satanic stuff intertwined in every institution. I don't believe it will happen. What, so God in you is not that powerful? So God is saying, sorry, Jesus, there's no need to, to come back and set up your kingdom. Satan's got you beat. He's got you whooped. Or do you think it's possible? And if you do think it's possible, here's the questions I'm asking myself. Do you understand there's a cost? Ah, the cost. Oh, this is where the non-selfish part comes in. Yes, there is a cost. And there's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice for anything we want to do. Um, in my generation, the athlete that most, um, I don't know, grabbed my attention was Pete Maravich. Anybody remember him? Pete Maravich. And uh, he was the first NBA player to ever make a contract of a million dollars. And, you know, he had really bad knees and they made movies about him when he was like, his, like a kid. And he decided that uh, his dad was a coach and he decided he wanted to be the best basketball player ever, ever. And so you know what he did during the summer? 10 hours a day. He just bounced the basketball, shoot basketball. He'd go up and down train tracks, bouncing on the rocks in the woods so he could learn ball control. He slept with a basketball, took a basketball to school. He was maligned for everything he did. There was a sacrifice. There was a cost. All the other guys are going swimming. You want to go swimming, Pete? No, I'm practicing basketball. Come on. That's all you ever do is practice basketball. Yes, but I'm so committed to this. This is what I want to do. And we admire people who have that kind of commitment to achieve some sort of lofty goal like he did, he becomes a hero. Where are our spiritual heroes that do exactly the same thing, that sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ? Are we willing to make that commitment? Is this something that we want to do? Do you think we even can do it? I mean, would you even want to be a member of the early church? We all come together. They're meeting every day, every day. I can't meet every day. I got ball practice and I need to watch Fox News and I don't like to watch reruns of Tucker. I need to, to see it live and I've got other things I need to do. Every day the church came together, breaking bread together. And okay, here we are. Hey, tell me what your day was like. Hey, I got a chance to witness to this person. A miracle was performed over here. God worked a, an incredible thing over. All our prayers were answered over here. How about you, Steve? Well, um... 
But yeah, I worked really hard, and I, um, I, read, I read my My Utmost for His Highest today. I did do that, and I normally read a psalm and proverb, but I didn't have a chance to do the proverb, but I did do the psalm, and so, yeah, my, my life is really good. Wouldn't that be something to hang with those guys? I mean, how does that work? What is it like? These are the questions that I want the Lord to ask. And so I start looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to do this together and see if we can find out some of the answers. And we're not going to get very far today. We're going to get this verse. Look what it says. It says, The former account I made, O Theopolis. Strange name. All that Jesus began both to do and teach. Remember, I've been sharing with you that if you want God to speak to you when you study your Bible, then don't rush him. Don't rush him. Just read and wait. Read and listen. Read and ponder. Read and ask questions. Read again and again and again and then ruminate on it and meditate on it and think about it. And then all of a sudden, God will reveal to you what he wants to show you. Even in this verse, this is what happened to me this week. This verse, the former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Lord, what do you want to show me here? Well, we'll begin with the academic part first. Okay, the former account. This is obviously uh, Luke, and Luke is writing his letter part two. The Luke one, of course, is the book of Luke, and Luke two is the book of Acts. I got that. And he's writing it to a guy named Theopolis. Well, Theopolis means friend of God. I don't know anything about Theopolis. Nobody really does, except obviously he must have had godly parents or Jewish parents or, or whatever that they named him friend of God. And I find that in Luke, where it's his first letter, first time Theopolis' name is mentioned, he calls him most excellent Theopolis. But here it's just Theopolis. And most excellent Theopolis in the book of Acts is a term designated like for Felix and Festus. So the idea is this guy must have been intelligent, he must have been educated, part of the ruling class, may have been an advocate. Some people say he, these may have been trial documents for Paul when he was uh, on trial in Rome, who knows? But obviously he's writing some account to a man of standing. Okay, that's the academic part, it's kind of interesting. So I turn back to Luke and I wanna read that and try to figure out if I can gain any more understanding about Theopolis. So here we go. This is Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have taken it in hand to set in order a narrative. Okay, so Luke's not the only one doing this. We got Matthew and Mark and okay, and John's going to write his later on of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So he's collecting this information from eyewitness accounts. It seemed good to me also, Luke says, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, which is exactly what Luke does. Oh, most excellent Theopolis, that you may know the certainty of what? Of the things in which you were instructed. Really? Really? By who? Who is instructing Theopolis about these accounts of Jesus, obviously orally, and for what purpose? Well, why is that even happening? Theopolis obviously wants to know so someone has shared with him all these stories about Jesus. Luke takes it upon himself to put them all together, writes an orderly account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to send it to Theopolis so that he may understand and know with certainty those things that somebody has been telling him about. So this is speculation, but we go from, oh, excellent Theopolis to, oh, Theopolis, much more informal, less formal, like writing to a friend. And many people believe that by the time Acts was rolling around, Theopolis had already come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke is talking to him as a brother. So I'm reading this and I'm just picking out a few high points. The former account I made of Theopolis, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach, 
interesting phrase, until the day in which it was taken up and how he, through the Holy Spirit, what? Yeah, he, God, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, through the third person of the Trinity, through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to his apostles. It doesn't say that he gave those commands on his own authority, but through the authority and through the power of the Holy Spirit residing in him as fully man, just like in us, he gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and here we go again, speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Talked about that last week. The book of Acts begins, and the last verse in the book of Acts talks about Paul teaching on the kingdom of God. So I'm reading this. Lord, what do you want to show me? Just this phrase. Do and teach. Really? Yeah. Former account I made of Theopolis, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the more he began to develop this with me this week, oh, it's so perfect for even some of the stuff I struggle with. Do and teach. Do and teach. Not teach and do what we do, but do and teach. Ministry first, theology second. Well, are you saying theology is not important? Absolutely not. I've spent the better part of my Christian life studying theology. It's very important to dot every I and cross every T and make sure your theology is correct. Otherwise, you get swept away into apostasy and heresy. We don't want that to happen. But if my whole life is based on theology and I have to come up with some sort of theological reason to do, then wouldn't that be modeled by Jesus or Paul or Peter or the disciples or any other gospel character? Yes, and it's not. The actual opposite is modeled. Ministry first, theology later. Jesus was always doing first and teaching later because ministry precedes and produces theology. It doesn't work in reverse. We're doing, and then we're asking God to show us how and why and for what purpose. We're not sitting down and trying to figure the theology out because I think it's this way, and Debbie thinks it's a little bit different, and Tim disagrees with both of us, so we're arguing about theology, and we just get older and just move on to oblivion, and the fact is that nobody gets saved. No power of God is revealed on earth. We're just having some sort of theological mental controversy about things that really don't matter. Really don't matter. Should I pray like this? Should I pray like this? Should I pray like this? Well, let's split a church over it. Does, you know, does this happen or that happen? Or how do we interpret this? That's very important. But ministry is first. Jesus never said, Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power to go out there and teach theology. Not, not at all downplaying the importance of getting it right. But I found that most of my experience in church has been all about getting it right and never doing it at all. And it's about doing that changes things. So, Lord, what are you trying to show me here? Well, this is not the first time this happens in Scripture. If you remember, in one of Jesus' post-resurrection encounters here, he meets these two men on the way to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. They're, you, know, you don't understand what happened here. And, and on the way, he opens their mind, and they begin to see who he really is. And once Jesus is taken away from them, their heart burned because they were in for the presence of the resurrected Lord. Here's their, here's their account of that. The one of the men was named Clophus. He answered to him and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known these things which happened there in these days? And Jesus, playing along with them, wanted to see how they would interpret what he had just done. He said, What things? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Don't you know who he was? He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. Could have been reversed. Luke could have said, teach and do, but the Holy Spirit didn't want him to. 
Because one of the things I found in the Christian church today is we're really big on teaching and very small on doing. Hey, listen, we're going to have a potluck dinner and we're going to grill some steaks and you guys bring some fixings. It's going to be great. I'm going to get a speaker up here and somebody's going to sing and he's going to tell us about mission work. Invite your friends. It's going to be incredible. And the house is packed because it's kind of all about us. It's a pleasurable experience. We're going to learn something. Now that we've learned about evangelism, next Tuesday, I want you to meet in the parking lot at seven o'clock. We got some names of people that we know live in the community that are not saved. We're going to go two by two, go out there and share Christ with them, shall we? And the crowd of 120 is down to six. And of those six people, four of them are there only because they feel guilty. Isn't that amazing? Has that not been your experience? Why is that? Why is it? Well, number one, we haven't really tapped into this evangelistic power inside of us. And number two, it's the fact that, no, 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 no. We're, we're not accustomed to doing. We're accustomed to just learning, learning, getting my degree. I've got a bachelor's degree in Christology, and now I'm going to get a master's and a doctor. Pretty soon I'll be able to teach other people so they can get doctorate degrees like us because we're this big lake, and everybody's getting in the lake, and the water's getting kind of stale, and we just encourage people to go out and splash in the water. That's what we do. Rather than church being a river that's powered by the Holy Spirit, coming from someplace we don't even recognize, passing by us and going someplace we don't even know. Do and teach. Look at this verse. But be doers of the word. What does that mean? What it means what it says you do. And not everything, yeah, what it says you do. If he's giving you a command, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. This is what we're supposed to do. I, I don't want to be a doer of the word. I just want to hear about those commands. I want to learn about those commands. I want to understand the nuances and the Greek tenses and the passive inflection of the various words. I want to have a knowledge of those commands so that I can share those commands with others. You don't really expect me to do them, do you? Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Well, what if I am just a hearer only, then I'm deceiving myself. About what? That you're really following God's word, that you're doing what he says you ought to do. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's doing, not just hearing. So how important is this? If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, which most Christians in the West are, hearers and not doers, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, ah, that's what I look like. He goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. What kind of man I was when I first came to Christ. What kind of man I was when I made these vows and commitments to Jesus. What kind of man I was when I surrendered my all to him. Then I figured out what the cost was surrendering my all. Then I took most of my all back. So 95% is me here and only 5% is doing. But that doing is just stuff that I don't mind doing. How, How does that even happen? Last part of this passage. For he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of this work, this one will be blessed in whatever he does. Watch. I don't want to just be a doer, a hearer, but if I am a doer, then what happens is if I look into the Bible and I continue in it, focused in it, that I will not forget about what I've heard and not do it because the the cares of this life are choking it out, but I will be blessed in everything I do. Note, look, continue, doer, work. Those are action words. In other words, this is something that I am doing, not just hearing, not just thinking about, but actually doing. And what I to be blessed in what I do, not what I say, not what I believe, but what I do. Obedience comes from uh, faithful doing and not just seeing and agreeing. Uh, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Nice sermon, preacher. Really enjoyed that evangelist that came in. That was fantastic. Why did you come? Well, I like to hear a good gospel message now and then. Did you bring anybody with you? Well, no, no, but, but it was good to be encouraged to go out and do what we've been doing. 
began to do and teach. First John, watch this. We have the contrast between someone who says and someone who does. Someone who says, no, 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 this is who I am, and yet their life doesn't line up with it. The passage says we're a liar. We have saying and then keep, keep, keeps, walks. I'm doing something here versus saying. Now, by this we know that we know him. I I know the Lord. Are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. How can you show me? Well, because of my spiritual fruits, because I'm abiding in the vine, because of all those other reasons, because I'm keeping his commandments. He who says, well, I know him and does not keep his commandments. I love the way the Lord does this. It's very intimidating. He never never does what we do. You catch somebody in a bold-faced lie, a political official on television, and they stick a camera and a microphone in his face, and they said, hey, you said it was black, and it was really white. Did you lie? And what did they say? I misspoke. Well, that's really a lie. No, no, we don't say lie. That has negative connotations to it. I misspoke. Okay. Lord, do you kind of deal that way? Do you soften it up in this sense? I don't want to offend you, but if you say you love me and you will keep my commandments, but you don't keep my commandments, you didn't misspoke. You're a liar. You're a liar. This is God Almighty. You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Oh, that one, that stings worse than being a liar. I can apologize to be, I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't mean to lie. Well, why did you lie? Because there's something more sinister happening. The truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word, truly, truly, the love of God is complete and perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who abides in him ought to himself do something, walk, live his time on earth just as Christ walked. Doing and teaching. Well, Lord, how about this? How about, um, how, about, how about I just teach about this? I can get my PhD, I can write books on it, and I can teach about this. As many of you know, uh, when I went to seminary, after I got saved, I was full of zeal and had less knowledge. And uh, I was taking an evangelism class with a friend of mine, and uh, We were really just fired up for the Lord at that time, and the professor had written several books on evangelism, and a guy in our class, um, this was back during the conservative takeover of the liberal Southern Baptist seminaries way back in the 80s, way back in the 80s uh, at Southeastern, and so there was a lot of tension in the classroom, and a guy in our class said, hey, before you teach this class, tell me how many people you have witnessed to this week and how many people you have won to the Lord. Because I only want to learn from somebody who's doing and not somebody who's teaching. And the professor said, young man, I have written three books on evangelism and I have a PhD in whatever it was. But as far as the actual practical application of that, he's probably like many of us. it's, It's easier to teach something I'm not doing than actually doing it. Scary. Here, Matthew chapter 7 talks about those who claim to have a relationship with Christ and and what's reserved for them is something rather scary. And here's what Jesus said. Again, this is about saying versus doing. It's like black and white. It's hot or cold. It's good fruit or bad fruit. Just the way the Lord does. There's no middle ground in here. You're either for me or against me. You're alive or dead. You walk according to the spirit. You walk according to the flesh. You don't kind of walk according to the spirit and kind of walk according to the flesh and find the favor of God on us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you're my king. You're the exalted one. You're the one I love more than anything. I give my life to you. Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's something more than just words. But he who does the will of my father in heaven is the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. Not just about confession. It's confession validated by service. Do you know why? We know this in our life. Words are cheap. Words are cheap. And actions always speak louder than words. 
Well, you, uh, you know that I love you. I know, but why are you coming home with liquor on your breath and lipstick on your collar after you've been perfume smell about you? Well, you know, you know I love you. Well, if you loved me, you would come home and be with your kids. Why are you out with this other woman? Well, you know I love you. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. We all know that's true in our life, but it's also true with him. First John, again, continuing. And again, it's what we say versus what we do. We say we have fellowship or we walk. It's one or the other. If we say we have fellowship with Christ, I love Jesus. He's the light of my life. He's the most important thing in my life. When I'm giving my testimony in front of a bunch of friends and neighbors or, or in church, I tell how wonderful he is. But my life outside of that testimony is just like the world's. When I say I have partnership, koinonia, fellowship, unity with him, yet I live and walk in darkness, well, am I just backslidden? No, you lie. About what? About walking in darkness? No, no, no. We all know you walk in darkness. You lie about having fellowship with him, and you do not practice the truth. Do and teach. Do and testify. Become and share what you have become by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we walk in the light, ah, as he is in the light, then everybody knows that our words and our testimony are true because our life backs them up. Then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's not what we say, it's what we do that matters. I'm in Acts chapter one, verse one. And he just pulls that phrase out and sticks it in my face and says, Steve, you've got a problem with saying and doing. There's some things in your life you need to be doing. I mean, when I share these messages with you, believe me, the Lord has shared them with me first. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do? I want to live like the early church. I want to have God move in my life the way he moved in their life. And so there comes a point in time when we've learned enough. We've studied enough. You know enough about the Lord Jesus to go tell somebody about it. Do you remember when you first got saved? You probably did more sharing of Jesus knowing nothing than you know now. What you did know is this, I, I was really messed up and I was lost. And in my testimony, I searched for Christ like 10 years, prayed the sinner's prayer 200 times. And he said no to the point I, th- I, I thought I was unsavable. And then, then on that day, all of a sudden I prayed and he revealed himself to me. And it was life-changing. It was amazing. It changed my marriage. It changed me as an individual. And I know nothing about the theology of this. I don't understand about the hypostatic union we talked about. I don't understand any of that kind of stuff. I hadn't been to seminary. I didn't know anything other than once I was blind and now I see. But I'm full of excitement. And now we know much more than that. But our excitement has waned. Why? Is the power of God not as strong in us? Or have we somehow let the world in so much that our light will shine in dark places? And and since my affirmation and my wealth comes from dark places, I'm not willing to sacrifice that for him. It's good to know. God, my gift is the gift of teaching and exhortation. I like knowing and I like sharing, but, but head knowledge has to lead to something. I don't want to be like the evangelist who wrote three books on salvation or uh, uh, evangelism and never led anybody to Christ or someone who gets up and preaches about the higher Christian life and never obtains it or somebody who talks about like James Dobson talking about being what a good father is and he beats his wife and gets divorced and runs off with his secretary. We don't want to be like that. He didn't do that, by the way. That's just an example. All right, just an example. Our calling is to get our hands dirty during the will of God and not just understanding what that will of God is mentally. Lord, if this is true, can you, uh, can you show me something else? Yeah, so we turn to Matthew chapter 21. And in Matthew chapter 21, there's a story about uh, um, a father who had two sons. Walks up to the first son and says, hey, 
I need you to go out there and work in the field. The first son says, you got it, dad, and doesn't go. Comes up to the second son and says, hey, I want you to go out there and work in the field. He says, no, I ain't going to do it. I'm going to sit here and play my video games. Later, he had a change of mind and went into the field and worked. Which one honored the father? Jesus, was, Jesus asked. And the response was the one who worked. It's not about what they said. It's what they did. That, that even the first one says, I'll do it, and doesn't. I mean, when he said, I'm doing it, there was this little euphoric reaction to the father. I'm sure, what a good son you are. But he didn't do it. Second one is like, I'm not going to do it. What an arrogant buffoon your mother gave birth to. Not even a son of mine anymore. But the fact is, he finally went out there and did it. Thank you, God, for moving in his heart. It's the doing, the obedience that brings us closer to him. Let me, let me just close with this. Couple commands. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Therefore has to do with all authority being given to Christ, now delegated to us in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's doing. Is that a command for you? Or do we just study it? I say then, you implied walk in the Spirit. Something I have to do. Not just learn about, oh, the word for spirit is pneuma, and it means breath, and it's used these other places in Scripture. I've learned all about the spirit and about what the word walk means, but ain't no way I'm living that way. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And you don't be conformed anymore to the image of this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You. You, when you're sitting at home on the internet at night, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's not somebody else's job. It's your job to do this. Let me close with this. Very familiar passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How do these things become appropriate, appropriate in our life? Not by studying them, but by doing them. And it's good to study them and understand them, but if there's no action behind them, then what's the point? We become like the Pharisees who know the law and violate the law with their very lives. We're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, I have great biblical knowledge. On the inside, I'm full of rebellion and arrogance and dead man's bones. You rejoice always, implied. You pray without ceasing. Not that person, but you. You in everything give thanks. You not, not Karen, not Roberta. You don't quench the spirit. You don't despise prophecies or prophetic utterances. You test all things. You hold fast to what is good. You abstain from every form of evil. Classic recipe here to begin living a life of sanctification. But it's not about just knowing. It's about doing. Doing. Now, we're just in verse 1. Let me, show you, let me show you some other stuff in here that we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. As a matter, matter of fact, I may just send you some teaching out uh, this week by audio, um, maybe covering a lot of this before next Sunday. Former account I made of Theopolis, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit. There's just so much here that Jesus... It says, through the Holy Spirit gave his commandments. Second person of, the, person of the Trinity setting aside so that his humanity is empowered by the same deity who lives in you. And it's that deity that Jesus leaned on that you're leaning on because he's our perfect sa uh, atoning sacrifice because he was tempted in every way like we are because he had nothing more as a man than you have right now. So there's no excuse for us not to live a life like him. And we have this whole issue of apostles and election when he chose them. Get to verse 3, that he presented himself alive after many infallible proofs. What an amazing phrase. Infallible to who? To those called, to the world in general. And it talks about that he was seen by them and he spoke again of this kingdom of God, something that we miss so much when we're looking at the book of Acts, even the teachings of Jesus. He spoke more about his kingdom than he spoke about anything else. At the end here in the book of Acts, my kingdom, the, the, the last questions the disciples asked him was this, Lord, will you show us how to pray? 
Show us how to build mega churches. Show us how to, to take over cultures. Will you show us how to love our wives and our children? Will you no. No. Lord, is now you're going to establish your kingdom? It was so much on his breath and on their mind that they even missed it and the whole idea of the kingdom, but that's what they wanted to know before Jesus ascended into heaven. Something we hardly ever talk about, but we will. Verses four and five, he was assembled together with them. What must have that been like? Them gathered around him as he's getting ready to be transfigured and taken away. And he told them not to depart from Jerusalem. I want you to know that there was a time to wait and there's a time to do. We find in the church today, we're still waiting because it's much easier to wait. For what? For the Holy Spirit, you've got him. Wait for what? For, for me to feel like doing? It's not about your feelings. It's about following his commands. We'll talk about that in time to come. Talked about the promise of the Father. Luke talked about that in, in uh, in Acts and in the book of Luke, and his promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. And once we get an understanding of the power that's involved in the Holy Spirit, who radiates from him, who lives in you, that nothing formed against us will prevail. And they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between being baptized and filled? What's the difference between what happened to them and what happened to you? Is there a difference? Or were they just relying more on what you already have that they have than we're relying on it today? So verse seven and eight. Will you at this time, right now, restore this kingdom to Israel? No, this is not the time. Well, when is that time coming? And what is the time we're living in right now? What are we supposed to do? And what about God's authority? How do we understand his authority? How does that work? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When we get to the point that we're going to be talking about this particular verse, I'm going to be using these phrases, E1, E2, and E3 evangelism. You ever heard them before? It's shocking. E1, it means how many cultural barriers you have to cross to share the gospel. We are all E1 in an E1 evangelistic setting. We all live in the same country. We're all pretty much the same kind of people. We all adhere to the same culture. If we were to go to, in America, let's say to a Hispanic community and try to share the gospel to a Hispanic community, we may have a uh, dialogue or a, a dialectic difference there and a kind of a cultural difference. That would be an E2. But if we were get in a plane and go to some country in Africa where we're this white guy that speaks English and they're living in a hut somewhere separated by several different cultural barriers, we now are in this E3 kind of evangelistic deal. We always think if we surrender ourselves to missions, God's going to send us E3. I don't want to go. I don't want to go to Africa. I just want to stay here. Worse than Africa, I don't want to go to New York. You know, I'd just rather stay here. Do you realize that Jesus never once went beyond E1? Never once. He even told his disciples, when I'm sending you out, don't go to E2. I don't want you with the Samaritans. You stay in E1. 99% of the calling of Christians today is for E1 evangelism. It's the easiest evangelism, and it's the one thing we don't do. And we're going to look at the fact that this is what Jesus modeled for us. E1 evangelism. Mo has a, uh, brothers and sisters all come from Iran and the Muslim background and all that kind of stuff, right? If I went to share Christ with them, I'd be in an E3 kind of setting. Well, your one's an American E2. If I went over to Iran with you in an E3 setting, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't understand the culture. I'd probably step on my tongue and say something highly offensive to them, and I didn't even mean it. But to Mo, that's his E1. Mo has an inroad to his metron that we don't have. God has equipped us to turn this world upside down from him, for him by the power living within us and placed us in situations where it's easiest for us to do in an E1 setting if we'll do it. I think it's time. It's time for us to quit learning and to take what we've learned and put it into action. Amen? Let me pray.